Let's bow our heads and let's have a word of prayer as we get started for the message. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here today. And Lord, we just ask that your message today, your scripture just comes alive in our lives. And as we look at this book of 1 Thessalonians, I just pray that we can learn some insights. But really, it's all part of who we are as a congregation in your church. And so, Lord, I just ask that our hearts are open for what you have for us. And Lord, we just uh, uh, have come here this morning to worship and praise you. And I just pray that we can do that with all of our hearts. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, <clears throat> maybe some of you know Charles Spurgeon, a minister from, famous minister from years, years gone by. And one Sunday morning he had a, a visitor at his church. And the visitor said, I visited many churches these past few years. And he said, all of them seem to have problems. And so this man says, I keep going from church to church looking for the perfect church. Well, this famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he told him that, you know, we have a lot of really good people in this church. But our church is far from perfect. And Spurgeon goes on to tell the man, this is not the church you're looking for. But he tells the man, if you should happen to find a church that's perfect like you want, I'm asking you right now, don't join it because then it won't be perfect anymore. Now, those those kinds of stories and words have been repeated and repeated throughout the centuries. And someone even translated this thought into a poem. So I'm going to read you a poem. And here's what it says. I think that I shall never see a church that's all it ought to be. A church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way. A church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never has the blues. A church whose elders always speak, and none is proud, and all are meek. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still we'll work and pray and plan to make our own the best we can. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about the next few weeks is, is what makes a mighty church and really we get the, the thoughts of that out of the book of First Thessalonians. And since local congregations, local churches like Kersey Community Church, since we're all made up of sinners that are saved by God's grace, no church is perfect. There might be some that are maybe a little closer than others. I think we're probably on the close end, you know. But if we look at our Scripture this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the church at Thessalonica was in that category. And all throughout this letter, Paul praises the church for their faithful work. He talks about their loving deeds. He talks about their commitment to Christ. And so you might say that the the church here was be considered a mighty church. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what are some of the characteristics that make up a mighty church. So in chapter 1, for instance, we're going to go through four qualities. And then we've got a bunch more next week and a bunch more the next week. But I didn't want to throw them all on you in one week because it would be really long. The other part is then the series would be over and have to come up with a new series. So, although 
our congregation, our church, will probably never be perfect this side of heaven. I think we can go clo- get close by following the example that Paul puts forth in this passage. So first of all, Paul describes this church as an energetic church. So how many of you feel really full of energy today? They might need to buy some more candy bars from Beth or something. Get some, get some sugar in you, right? But this church was an energetic church. In a museum in Detroit, Michigan, they have a huge steam locomotive. And beside this big old piece of complicated machinery, there's a sign that shows the boiling pressure. It shows the size of the wheels and the number of wheels this locomotive had, the horsepower, how long it is, how, long, how much it weighs, and it goes through all of these statistics. But on the bottom of the sign there, it indicates that 96% of the power that was generated by this steam locomotive was to run the locomotive and only 4% of the power was left to pull the load. Which I thought that's kind of an extreme, isn't it? But you know, there are some churches like that. There's a lot of churches that that 4% of the people are doing 96% of the work. And it reminds me of a little boy in Sunday school. He'd been in Sunday school all his life. He'd sat through church services all his life as a kid. And he had heard sermons on justification and sanctification and uh, you name it, any kind of Asian that you could come up with. He had heard a sermon on it. Well, one day, his Sunday school teacher asked if anybody in the class knew what procrastination was. That little boy, he raises his hand. And he tells his teacher, he says, I'm not sure what it means, but I do know that our church believes it. Now the church at Thessalonica did not believe it. They were a hard-working, a very energetic church. If we look at our Scripture in verses 2 and 3, it says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So here and all throughout this letter, Paul praises the church for their activity, for the work that they're doing for Christ, and for all of the good deeds. They were a church that were doing things for Christ. They were energetic. It says there, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love. You realize faith in Jesus ought to be lived out in our lives. Our love for God and our love for His church ought to prompt us to want to serve Him. And you know, when you're working and doing something that you love, it doesn't seem like work, right? I'll give you an example. Go back to the Old Testament about Genesis. If you get to Gen- if you get to Revelation, go back about sixty-five books. Okay, 
first book of the Bible. But we discover a, a kind of a beautiful story. It's about Jacob and his soon-to-be wife, Rachel. He had gone down, kind of fleeing, wondering what's going to happen. He's got his, he's sitting by this well, and generally sitting by a well was not a good place to meet women back then, because it was only the shepherds that would come and water the sheep and, and all that kind of stuff. And there was a big stone above the well, and usually the, the shepherds would come and they'd all come around noontime, get, get, and they'd all pick up the lid and pull it over so their flocks could drink some water. So Jacob's sitting over by this. And he's waiting, probably waiting for some strong men to come and help him carry the lid off so he can get something to drink. And as he's sitting there, all of a sudden one of the most beautiful women he'd ever seen in his life, and she's a a shepherdess. She's got her own flock. And he's just enthralled. And, And it's like love at first sight. And Jacob jumps to his feet and he single handedly grabs that lid and he struggles, probably struggles with it and stuff, but he's trying to impress the woman, right? And he gets the lid off, helps her water her sheep. And then he spends about a month just gushing over her looks and just, wow, most beautiful thing. I desperately want to marry this woman, but I don't have any engagement ring and I don't have any money for a dowry, which they required back then. And so you remember what Jacob tells Rachel's father. He says, I will work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now here's what I want you to get out of this. Because you knew there was a point, right? Genesis 29.20, and it says here, So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. That's what it's like when we're serving the Lord. The things that we're doing for the Lord, it's like, wow. This is so exciting that I get to do the things for the Lord. And if you think about it, in the church, every one of us has something special to do. The Bible tells us that we're all supposed to work for Christ until He comes. And I think we're very blessed here at Kersey to to have a... You know, I'm not one for vocabulary, but my wife uses this word a lot. Plethora. We have a plethora of volunteers who serve in a variety of ways. I mean, whether it's you're going to be serving in VBS, or we got a WANA, we've got choir, we've got worship team, we've got ushering, we've got greeting, we've got Sunday school teachers, we've got you, you name it, and we probably have it. We've got people that work in the kitchen and, and help all over the place. And I'm going to go on a limb and say, for the most part, they enjoy it. Just like Jacob, serving seven years, and he's just seems like only just a few days. And so I'd encourage you, if you're not serving in some way, I think you'd enjoy it, and you're going to be really serving the Lord. Now the th- second thing that we see about this church in, in our Scripture today is that they were also an elect church. If you look at verse 4, it says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Paul's reminding them that who they are in Christ. They're, they're God's chosen ones. And sometimes that gets kind of confusing with the chosen thing, and, and we can get into all sorts of debates and, and do all sorts of 
doctrinal studies about certain things. But it kind of comes down to John 3.16. Which says what? For God so loved the world. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But God so loved the world. Do you realize God loves you deeply and dearly? He wants nothing more than for us to be reconciled to Him. That God loves us and chose us to be His people, that ought to inspire gratitude into our lives. That ought to fill us with a bunch of worth and a bunch of value. That should motivate us to be people that He's chosen us to be. So to understand the significance of being chosen by God, think of all the times you weren't chosen. I mean, think about, you know, I don't know what your life was like, but, you know, maybe you were an uncoordinated kid. Maybe you were chosen last for the kickball team or whatever it might be, spelling bee, I don't know. Remember when we used to line? I don't know if we can do that anymore. Is that politically correct to do that anymore? I don't know if they can choose sides anymore. I don't know. But you get uh, you get uh, one person left, and you'd have the two sides. And they'd say, "Well, um, you can have them." Well, no, you can have them. Well, think about how that person felt. You know, that that's the whole key to this. God doesn't have us feeling that way. He says, "You know, I love you. I love you." No matter who we are, He loves us. And unlike growing up where we weren't chosen sometimes, to be chosen by God means we're not only His first choice, but His best choice. That's what He thinks of us. But have you ever thought about why did God choose you? Was it your dashing good looks? I thought Myron would say something at that point, but he didn't. Maybe it's your irresistible personality. Maybe it's your, your wit and your wisdom. It's none of those. God chose you because of His love for you. God loves you, it says, and has chosen you. That's what Paul says in our passage. He chose us to be His people. And so we need to let that embrace and empower us to be the people that He's called us to be. So they were an energetic church, they were an elect church, but then they were also an evangelistic church. Paul has praised the Thessalonians for their faithful works and loving deeds. And one of the most important works of the church is to share the faith with the people around us, to our community. If you look at verse 8, Paul writes, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. The Christians at this church here were not only energetic and excited about their faith, they were an evangelistic church. They were constantly sharing their faith about Jesus to the people around them. Now, what's your first reaction when you hear the word evangelism? 
I mean, you can go through your mind. You can, you know, you can look at some of the, the, the hokey pokey pastors on TV. That might come to your mind. Um, there's some good ones too. Don't get me wrong. A lot of good ones. But what do you think about? It depends on where, where you've been. Does it mean evangelism? Does that mean knocking on doors, door to door? And I don't know if I could do that. We're going out on the street and evangelizing on the corner. Well, maybe we look at some of the crusades. You know, you got Billy Graham used to hold tremendous crusades in in the communities. We got we got we got some evangelists that really do hold crusades to to win people's souls, to to bring them to Christ. And we might look at that and say, you know, I, I don't think I could do that. But it kind of reminds me of an old Peanuts cartoon which Lucy says to Charlie Brown, Lucy says, I would have been a great evangelist. Charlie Brown goes, wow. Is that so? She says, yes. She goes, in fact, I convinced the boy that sat in front of me that my religion's better than his religion. Charlie Brown goes, wow, how did you do that? And she said, well, I hit him over the head with my lunchbox. Now, that's probably not the best approach. But the truth is, there's a lot of different ways that we can share our faith. There's a lot of different ways that we can tell our friends. And one of the best ways is, share your testimony of how did God make a difference in your life. You can spark spiritual conversations with your relatives, co-workers, whoever you're at. Another one is just inviting them to attend with you. You see, we live in a culture which there's still a majority of people identify themselves as Christians. But there's many that identify themselves as Christians but don't know what it is. And a lot of them are so disconnected from the church and the Bible that they have no idea what it means to live a Christian life. But many of them, I believe, want to. And according to a a pretty recent Barna research, which generally does stuff for the churches and research and stats and all of that kind of stuff, but here's what it comes down to. They say that 25% of unchurched Americans say that they would very likely be willing to attend church if they were invited. 25%. So think about it. One in four of your friends would be willing to come to church with you if you went out on a limb and invited them to come to church. And hopefully we get them, we hear the gospel, and hopefully God changes them, right? But a mighty church is an evangelistic church. We reach out, we want to share the gospel. So we need to follow the example of this church and let the message of Jesus ring out everywhere. And another thing that he says in this passage is that this church is an expectant church. 
And Paul brings this chapter to a close. He reminds the Thessalonians, he says, you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus whom God raised from the dead. The Thessalonians, you can lift that a lot. That's worse than Macedonia. But the Thessalonians spent their lives with their eye on the clouds. They had their ears trying to listen for that trumpet sound because they were anxiously awaiting the day of Christ's return. And I think sadly today we've maybe lost the sense of expecting. We've lost the sense of expecting the return of Jesus. But you know what? That's a vital plan of God's plan for humanity. History is not just an endless succession of circles that go back and we repeat and we go back and repeat. It's a directed movement to a great event coming. The second coming of Christ. Christ's coming was foretold by the prophets. It was proclaimed by the angels. It was promised by Jesus Himself. He says in John 14.3, I will come again. In Hebrews 9.28, it says, Christ will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting on Him. And so I guess the to conclude some of this, are we waiting eagerly for the return of Christ? And I think as Christians, sometimes we're afraid to say no. We know the answer should be, yes, yes, I, I'm a Christian. I'm looking forward to the return of Christ. I just hope it's not today or tomorrow or a couple weeks from now. Because all too often, I think we get so caught up in living our lives here on this earth, this immediate and this temporal time, that we don't give much thought to eternity. The Thessalonians didn't think that way. They looked forward to the return of Christ. And they were eagerly anticipating it. And that anticipation carried them through troublesome times in their lives. It spurred them on to do even more love and good deeds for Christ. Now in the meantime, before Christ comes back, we may never be the perfect church, but I think by following the example of the Thessalonians, we can be an energetic church. We can be an elect church. We can be an uh, evangelistic church. We can be an expectant church. In other words, I believe that we can be a mighty, mighty church that honors Christ. So maybe you're, maybe you're an old-timer here. Who considers themselves an old-timer here? I just didn't know what to break it down with age-wise. I'll just see who raises their hand. So if you're uh, older than 120, I think you just raise your hand. Or maybe you're just visiting today. Maybe you've just uh, been here a few times and, and you're not exactly 
Maybe you're still looking for the perfect church. I trust that you come back. Become part of our fellowship. I hope that we can share Christ. Prompt each other up to good works for God. And I encourage you over the next few weeks to read through the book of Thessalonians. I mean, look at today. We did one chapter and it was only ten verses. How many is in second chapter? Hmm? I was just seeing who has their Bibles open. What's that? So if you read three verses a day of second or first Thessalonians chapter two, read three verses of that a day, you'll have the whole chapter covered by the time we get back next week. How's that go? And we're going to take some more characteristics of what a mighty church might be. But it kind of comes down to this. We're going to have a time around the Lord's table in a moment. But the biggest question that you can go away with today is, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you really believe that Jesus is who He said He is? And that He has come because of His love for us to die on the cross to save us from our sins? And it says, whoever believes on Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the whole crutch of the whole Scripture right there. And so I trust that you know Jesus in your life today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You just for this time together. And even now as we spend some time around Your table, I just pray that we can really do some soul searching and examine our lives to really make sure that You're first in all that we do and all that we say. And and Lord, I just pray that if there's anyone here that does not know You, I just pray even right where they're sitting, they ask You into their heart and life right now. And Lord, that You just give them new life. And so Lord, I, I thank You that we can be here today. And Lord, I just pray that we can be the church that You've called us to be. And Lord, that You are the head. And I just pray that we all that we do here brings glory and honor to You. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.